potluck dinners, home cooking at its finest, and everyone brings something different. But have you ever enjoyed a potluck of wicked true stories? Mm. While celebrating Thanksgiving recently, the creative minds here on the Wicked South podcast got to thinking of the legend behind the first Thanksgiving. You know, the whole pilgrims and Native Americans coming together in peaceful feast and harmony at Plymouth Rock. But as we all know, this traditional story did not have a happy ending for nations of natives who were here for centuries before the first Europeans. And this meal would later give way to massacre and murder throughout American history. So in the spirit of the traditional Thanksgiving potluck dinner, where everyone brings a different dish, the Wicked South team presents a potluck of stories, tales of mayhem and massacre that take us back to the colonial days when North American rivers ran red with blood. Hello, friend. That is, of course, the voice of Michael DeWitt Jr., who writes for the Gannett Newspapers USA Today Network. He is also a historian, a storyteller, and he has the book The Wicked Hampton County, and now the book The Fall of the House of Murdoch. I am Matt Harris. Seated across from me is Seton Tucker. We are also the host of Impact of Influence. You can find that podcast as well. Uh, Michael. How about we thank our sponsors before we roll into this episode? I'd be happy to. Dr. Kenny Kinsey, he's our one of our favorite friends, characters, and uh, and sponsor. Uh, he and I are talking about going and doing a little bit of uh, quail hunting here real soon. Oh, nice. So uh, I'm going to be extra nice to him and butter him up on the air, and um, <laughs> maybe we can make that happen. Palmetto Pride Distillery, uh, home of Palmetto Pride Moonshine up in Anderson, South Carolina. They've invited me uh, to come in the new year and uh, possibly do a book signing at the Moonshine Distillery in Anderson. Oh, sweet. And uh, I'm looking forward to that. I may have to get a hotel room nearby. Um, they're probably going to give us a tour of the place and samples and things of that nature. And finally, right here in the 14th Judicial Circuit, Rotten Little Bastard Distillery. It was in court again on November 28th, and I stopped by there on the way home from watching Alex Murdoch get sentenced to 27 years in prison. And they have unveiled a new size, uh, 375 milliliters for all us Americans. That's pint bottles. And uh, I want to tell you a little bit about that at the end of the episode, why it's so important to have a different size bottle in your pocket. <laughs> so let's get down to business. Well, the first business, I guess, is to mention that uh, both of you, Seton and Mike were uh, hitting me up a little bit about my court TV appearance the other night where I was on with lawyer Lori and Neil Gordon, who wrote the co-wrote the book with Becky Hill. And for some reason, my hair was getting some comments. Yes, it went viral on Twitter. People were really, they liked your product. They liked what they liked to look. <laughs> I, I did not know that. I, I, did, I didn't even realize they were making comments about it. Were some of them good? <laughs> I, I think they were good. I mean, it seemed. I mean, you you didn't have much of an opportunity to get a word in, but uh, on the I, show, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I think the primary comment about you was how great your hair looked. Wow, I got a. I don't even know what I did other than run upstairs ten minutes before and put some crap in there, and well, not literal, <laughs> but you know, if you need any tips, Michael, on hair, let me know. 
Well, uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of jealous and I'm a little bit mad at you. Um, <laughs> I, I watched court TV and my wife said, why can't you have a uh, great hair like that? <laughs> and I went and looked in the mirror and I've got like five strands of hair left on top of my head right there at the front. I got a little bit more in the back, but the front is about five very loyal, very hearty hairs just hanging on for dear life. And I'm like, you know, damn you woman, why you got to say such, such things, you know? Uh, but uh, so, yeah, I'm a little mad and a little jealous at you, uh, Matt, but I'll, we'll, we'll get through this episode. I hope so. <laughs> we will. We will. I can take it. Uh, all right. So um, back to what we're here for is the wicked South and, I will uh, get our potluck started with our first story. We go back to August 30th, 1763. It was now modern-day Lancaster County. King Hagler, chief of the Cadaba Nation, was killed by raiding Shawnee warriors in Virginia. He was shot six times. He was known as a great leader, loyal to the South Carolina royal governor, so it was a great loss to the Catawba Nation and a blow to European Native relations. King Hagler was buried in a massive grave loaded with gold and silver and other valuables. Sixteen warriors guarded the grave. And then after a month, a band of Virginia gamblers paid a visit, reportedly got the guards drunk, and looted the grave. After the North Carolina government failed to apprehend the killers, the Catawba captured several of them, then tortured them until they were almost dead, before turning them over to the young boys in the tribe to use for target practice. Proud Catawba then scalped them and sent the scalps to Royal Governor James Glenn as tribute. Does uh, FedEx who does uh, bloody scalps? This is not the only. This is not the only uh, talking about body parts making its way to Governor Glenn. So we'll more of that that coming up. up. Yeah, we'll hit that later in this episode. Allegedly, the governor sent the scalps back to the tribe and told him to proudly display them. Make your boys into men. Yeah, it was awful what happened, and that's the kind of justice that was uh, 1763 justice, at least in, in that uh, particular story. And Mike, you're heading down to the low country in this story. I am. And, and before I, I get started, I want to comment, you know, yeah. before we, we change the subject, it, it would probably take a lot more to scalp. Um, my co-host Matt, then it wouldn't scout me. Um, yeah, after what I saw on court TV, that's some very formidable hair. My scalp um, would uh, look yeah. nice on the wall. Yeah, they would. Uh, they they would have. The governor would have kept your scalp. He would have sent the rest of them back. And said, "I'm keeping this one." He'd probably make a toupee or a wig or something. <laughs> yeah, I would. Well, that's what I'm. That is my hair. I'm actually have a toupee. It's not my real hair. I'm uh, so <laughs> the low countries is violent too at this time of uh, well, well actually a couple hundred years earlier yeah yeah to kind of um, tie in we know so we see a theme of native uh, violence murdering the chief and torture and imagine those guys being tortured so they were almost dead and then they think maybe okay maybe they're going to let us live and then boom we turn them over to for target practice well there's a little torture and a little bit of violence uh, down here in, in the in the low country. The early experience, the Spanish began exploring uh, Beaufort, Hampton County used to be all one county. Hampton was carved from Beaufort. So the first Spanish uh, explorers were, um, were here around 1521, and Native Americans just wiped them out, you know, pretty early, all throughout the Beaufort district is, is what it was called. Then the French tried a settlement uh, led by Jean Ribal, I believe is how you say it, uh, in 1562, 
And according to the history books, the French settlement perished in a dog-eat-dog struggle. Mm. I think that might have been a combination of, of native violence and starvation, uh, hard times. And it was even a Scottish settlement that was attempted here in around 1684, 1686, sometime around there. And that failed. That uh, settlement was wiped out. But for some reason, the English did better. The English came uh, around 1670. The natives uh, were, were more friendly, or maybe the English were more friendly in dealing with the natives. You know, they weren't here to enslave necessarily. They weren't here to to look for gold like the Spanish. And so they, they had an easier time of it. So at first, the, the coastal natives especially were, were friendly with the English. They even helped uh, protect them from the uh, warring Spaniards and other uh, European enemies and allied with them. But hostilities kind of grew because of, let's call it unscrupulous trading by what they called Indian agents. As we all know today, the word Indian is not politically correct. You know, Native American is the preferred term. But back then they called them Indian agents and they were tasked with, you know, negotiations, keeping the peace. Often they ran trading settlements and they traded European goods like metal, firearms, alcohol. They traded with the natives for what they had. And there was a Pocatalago, which is not far from uh, from where I live here in Hampton County. Uh, it was a Pocatalago Indian agent that was very, very crooked. And agents like him were eventually led to hard feelings that caused what became known as the Yamasee Uprising or the Yamasee War. The term they used was Indian agent. Was that a Native American person? They were usually English, European. Okay, so they were like taking advantage of the Native Americans in very unscrupulous ways. Well, and the Yemisee, actually, they weren't indigenous to South Carolina. They came up from Florida. Really? Didn't know that. That's right. What became the problem? What was the big problem with the traders? Was something to do with credit? Well, they would give credit. They would uh, give credit to the tribe. If they needed supplies, food, guns, whatever, they'd say, okay, bring me back 10 or, or 15 deer hides. You know, the, the fur trade and the hide trade was very big. You go to a, a, the New World, and while the Spanish were looking for gold, the English were looking for, for timber, lumber, for masts for ships. They were looking for hides for the fur trade. So they were looking for totally different natural resources. So they would overextend credit to the tribes. And the plan for some of them, like the Pocatalago agent was, okay, if they can't pay me back, then I'm going to get to seize their land. So you can't pay me back. You owe me a certain number of deer hides. All right, well, just move out of this this area here. Let me have it, and we'll call it even. Uh, and, so it's like a mob type thing. Like, you know, well, you, you, just, you, you yeah, just kind of slowly yeah. uh, taking over their turf, taking over their territory. Exactly. Then what happened? Well, it got so bad at one point, and when we say the Yamasee, it's spelled a different way than the town of Yamasee here is in Hampton, but it's the same derivative. The Yamasee, spelled with an A, uh, Y-A-M-A-S-E-E. At one point, the Yamasee owed European traders 100,000 deerskins. Jeez. And one historian estimated that that was a debt that would have taken the entire tribe four years or more to repay. And by that time, the deer population was was you know decimated. It was almost wiped out. So... These Indians, they they were forced to give up their land, these Native Americans, excuse me. And, you know, even if they wanted to, they couldn't repay this debt. And so they got they got a little uh, they got a little upset and sure. decided to take things into their own hands. It's hard to believe that the deer population was decimated in South Carolina, just driving on our roads, especially at night. I mean, it's it's They're dangerous. Everywhere. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. 
Yes. It's kind of gone and come in cycles. I know this from, from living here and being from a family of hunters and for writing for outdoor magazines for, for most of my um, early career. My grandfather recalls a time that when there were very few turkeys and very few white-tailed deer anywhere around here, they wow. people you know were hunting for food and the old timers would go night hunting. Anything that they could do, which is illegal, but anything they could do to put food on the table and it took good management. I know we were getting way off on a side road, but it took yeah. good wildlife management to bring the deer back and the wild turkey. And I think it kind of went through cycles back then. There was probably a period where deer were almost wiped out and then they, they bounced back only to be wiped out again. Mm. Huh. Terrible. So back to the giving them all that credit, which there was no way they were going to pay back so that they realized what kind of hole they were in native Americans. So you know, they, they got to rebel. I mean, there's just no way they're ever going to pay them back. So on Good Friday, April 15th, 1715, what happened, Mike? Well, a group of Yamasee warriors rebelled and killed 90 white traders and their families in the Pocataligo town area. So that one little first attack took out 90 people. According to Yamasee War, a history book by Michael P. Morris, which I referenced, used as a reference book for Wicked Hampton County, one Indian agent, a Scottish man by the name of Thomas Nairn or Narn, it's spelled N-A-I-R-N-E, was captured, staked out in the center of a village and tortured to death in a process that took several days. Mm. Now, I'm trying to get my hands on that book. I can't find any more details online, and, uh, but I'm trying to get a copy of that book because I'd like to know exactly kind of what they did. Um but can you imagine uh, several days, day and night, uh, being tortured right there in the center of town? Everybody's walking by, looking at you, probably getting their own jabs in. Um, so he, uh, at least one of the Indian trader agents, got his uh, his uh, just desserts, I guess you would say. Mm-hmm. But they they went on. The Yamasee went on and began raiding plantations near the coast. Now this war uh, eventually it, it consumed most of Lower South Carolina, but in our area, it went from inland counties like Hampton all the way to the coast, and then from Savannah on up to Charleston, Port Royal, Beaufort, all of these places. And they just began raiding plantations, killing people, killing livestock. Some of the settlers escaped by sailing away on a seized smuggler ship. Mm. Others fled to Charleston to hide behind the city walls there. And this was... Uh, one historian says when other tribes eventually joined the Yamasee, this uprising could have wiped out the European colonies from the Carolinas to Virginia. If the Cherokee, one of the largest tribes that had a huge population in the Carolinas, if the Cherokee would have joined this uprising, it would have wiped out every European from Savannah to the, to Virginia. Jeez, that's a change in the whole look of the country. Yeah. This one thing, uh, like I said, it, it was primarily in the lower state, and it spread around the Carolinas. And But the Cherokee were mostly in the upper part of the state. They were kind of far removed from the struggles of the Yamasee down in the low country. And they were very friendly with the English. The English were, were good to them. They were giving them, you know, lots of goods and, and things. And, and their short-sighted strategy, they said, well, you know what? Let them guys down south fight it, fight it out, and, and we're just going to stay up here and chill. And one historian said, South Carolina came closer to eradication than any other English colony. 
that's more. It's more wrote that in the history book we mentioned earlier. So I bet if the Cherokee could have gone back in time and rethought that decision, that could have affected uh, American history. What if what we know is America was only in the northern part of the continent? What if the southern part of the continent remained uh, unsettled for centuries longer? Just something to ponder. Yeah, that would have changed the whole course of history. Eventually, the turning point of the uprising came. There were some bloody battles in Port Royal, which is in Beaufort County, right here in the 14th Circuit, and Salkahatchee, which is uh, inland between Hampton and, and Beaufort. And the embassy were eventually overwhelmed and forced to flee back south where they came, back south of the Savannah River. And most of the bloodshed was over by uh, April 1716. The conflict was over entirely by 1718. But the damage was done. Roughly 400 Europeans were killed. Property damage, livestock lost, military costs. They were estimated at more than 350,000 British pounds, which is roughly $60 million today. Well, much as a loss as that was doesn't even compare even like a, a drop in the bucket to the number of Native Americans that were wiped out, you know. Well, let's take about a 60-second break to talk about one of our sponsors, and we hope you'll support them. And then we come back with a pretty good find by Seton. It's coming up next. And we're going to talk about Palmetto Pride Moonshine. And the holiday season's coming up, so you can sip your way to the holiday season with Palmetto Distillery's collection of award-winning spirits. All right, guys, we got to try these all. 12 moonshine flavors, 6 sipping cream flavors, a 21% rye whiskey, and even ready-to-drink cocktails. Something for everyone on the list. So you can do this as a, a great present. I still say it's time for a Michael, Dwayne, Seton, Matt trip. But nevertheless, Michael, you're closer, so I expect uh, this sent up to us. You can share the love and spread some cheers this season with their limited edition holiday samplers. Tell me more, Seton. Oh, I love it. They make a great gift. Uh, each set includes five top-selling Palmetto Moonshine flavors neatly bundled in a traditional candy cane case a gift that looks as good as it tastes yeah yep uh search their online store locator to discover a liquor store near you or online at liquidblackjack.com michael tell them about the limited time deal i would be delighted to and we're also going to post this on our facebook page right for a limited time the wicked south listeners can get a special 25 percent off online discount uh, from their online orders from palmettodistillery.com or liquidblackjack.com when you use this promo code, Holiday Cheers in all caps. Holiday Cheers. Use that promo code at checkout and get in the holiday spirit. Find your flavor and pass the jar. palmettodistillery.com, liquidblackjack.com. Promo code Holiday Cheers. You can find it on the Wicked South Podcast Facebook page. So that was our lovely sponsor, Palmetto Pride Moonshine. And I want to give way to the third and final potluck story of the episode. I'm a little, like I said, I'm a little uh, down on my luck this this episode. Um, Matt uh, wins the best hair contest. Uh, Seton <laughs> went out in the potluck uh, contest and found the best story. Uh, you know, Matt had a pretty good one. Um, I got a little technical and and historical with a lot of numbers and dates. And Seton just found just the ultimate uh, story of, of mayhem and bloodshed. And uh, she's, you know, don't let the, the looks fool you. She's not just some quiet, uh, 
quiet uh, journalist. She's got a wicked uh, storyteller's heart. So let's hear what Seton has. Well, no one has ever said quiet, by the way, Michael, just for the record. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate it. You also called me uh, my looks. I mean, yeah. I, look, I'm getting, I, I'll take all the compliments I can get at this point. Uh, so what do we got, Seton? So we're going to tell the story of the murder at Hell Hole Swamp. And I discovered this when I was looking for it uh, from the Charleston Time Machine. Puts out this really great historic podcast from the Charleston County Public Library. And I don't even know how I stumbled upon this, but I thought it was really interesting because it involves the Catawba Indians, which are up near us. By us, we mean in uh, like the... In South Carolina, the, the the Fort Mill, York County area. Yes, Rock Hill, Fort Mill, um, right. along the Catawba River. Right. So that's near us, and it also involves a tribe which had settled down uh, in Colleton County. So hmm. I thought it was really interesting. Uh, when I was researching it, the Native Americans who were originally in the Low Country were the Casabo, and they were kind of decimated when the Europeans came over by disease and other things. So the Nachi was a tribe that had been in Mississippi and they came down to South Carolina to seek refuge from the Spanish. And I guess the English were more friendly to them and they they came down, they met with the governor. They actually held a dance um, on the governor's lawn. It was, that was kind of interesting um, and played games and that sort of thing. And then in March of 17... 38, um, they struck up a deal to purchase 100 acres near Four Hole Swamp, um, which was about 40 miles northwest of Charleston. And they purchased it from a man, and it was, I guess, kind of a modern... Or- purchased the government purchased it? Yeah, I, they, I think the government, it was going to be a... Um, like a reservation? A reservation, yes. It was, it was kind of like a reservation. Okay. And this was a sprawling wetland area that was filled with ancient cypress, a tupelo forest, and it stretched for more than 60 miles across uh, modern counties, Calhoun, Orangeburg, Berkeley, Dorchester, along the Edisto, upper Edisto River. So the Nachi, they were kind of new to South Carolina, and they were located in the low country, but more established were the Catawba Indians, and the Nachi invited the Catawba Indians to kind of come down and have this feast and friendship celebration. And it was at the time prohibited the sale of alcohol to Native Americans. That was illegal. But there was a man named William Patton who uh, was the proprietor of a trading post in the area, and he provided alcohol to the group. Now, the Nachi were reportedly, they, they, they liked to take part and libations but during the celebration they did not they did not oh so this william Patton guy gives the alcohol for this particular party occasion thing they're going to do yes they the nazi normally drink and the nazi this time say hey you can have it you can have it so they have this they have this celebration and they didn't take part but I, I think this, that this was part of the plan. So it wasn't just like this friendly thing, like you guys can have the booze. No, they plan. wanted, they, the Nachi wanted the alcohol, the, the Catawbas to be oh. drunked up, right. Uh, so while the Catawba were sleeping peacefully in their drunker stupor, several of the Nachi men attacked the Catawba 
Indians, and it was it was debatable. I'm not sure people died somewhere between two or ten. So uh, th- then, a question I have is: so they didn't drink the uh, the Nazi? Was it all the Nazis or just these two guys? And was it a whole Nazi plan or was it just like two random murderers? Hearing the story, I was not completely clear on whether it it was just blamed on these two men, which they called Toms, which was kind of an interesting side note of why they called them Toms. The Europeans, you know, we had this slang where they back then where they called the Indians Braves, um, you know, as opposed to warriors, an Indian brave. But amongst the Native Americans themselves, at least this tribe, uh, they referred to these two uh, men, the two killers, as Toms. And the idea was they were comparing them to Tom turkeys, which are the male, big male turkeys that puff out and strut around. And I think the notion was that they were important men of the tribe, or at least they thought they were important. And so throughout the, the narrative of the story that, that, that we read and that we listened to, they're often referred to as the two Toms. You call someone a turkey in today's time, you would think oh, they're making fun of them. But I guess that was kind of a compliment. Now, Michael, did you think that these two Toms were kind of the fall guys for this? Or do you think that it really was just these these two people who who hatched this plan because I had questions because of the fact that nobody took part in the libations. I suspect, and I noticed they said that all of the Nazi declined to get drunk and that the victims were mangled in a barbarous manner. I kind of got the impression that maybe there were more than one killer, but these two guys were the ringleaders, you know, Mm. um, they were kind of organized the thing. They may have had a couple of others that, that helped out. Um, but uh, uh, ultimately, uh, weren't these the two that eventually um, paid the price for this crime? So what happened next is these two killers, they, they fled and they went into hiding. And the governor at this point gets involved because it was an English government and— it seemed like at the time the, the Native American troops, it was very political. You, they took affiliation. They, the Nazi fled Mississippi, uh, who was under French control, and now this is this English-controlled government. And the governor of South Carolina at the time did not want these two tribes warring against each other because they counted on them. Get along? Protect, to get along and also protect them from other colonists, the French and the Spanish. So in other words, the, the Catawba, they start forming a, a war party and they're going to go find these killers who are in hiding, right? Right. And and the Catawba was very powerful. So they did, you know, the, the governor wanted to, it, it was of his interest to have these, these tribes get along. Okay. So the governor reaches out to... The king, they called him a king, the king of the Nachi, saying, hey, you got to you got to make this right. King Will. Is that his name? Yes, King Will. They wanted to make sure that, you know, justice was going to be brought and that the Catawbas would be made Just right. Kill everybody. Well, the Catawbas are going to he's probably thinking, I guess he said that the Catawbas are going to wipe out everybody. So he says to the King Will, is the way I understand it, he says, hey, King Will, bring me the two murderers. And maybe the and, and these people won't wipe you out. Is that right? Did I'm reading yes. that right? Yeah. Yeah, making a deal, kind of. So they make a deal. Eventually, these two Toms come back to the Nazi tribe. And, you know, they're they're kind of in hiding. And 
King Will and a couple of other guys say, hey, we need to go to this trading post. And they, they talk these two, these two Toms into going with them. Okay. And while they're en route to this trading post, uh, they kill them. Their own people. They kill their own people. Well, the, well, the people, the, like the Nazis, I, I'm, I'm guessing, I'm just trying to understand. So they get these guys because they, and they kill their own guys because they're rogue murderers and they don't want the Katabas wiping them out. And so it, they kill them and they were on actually what is modern day Highway 17, which is the road that goes from Colleton County to Charleston. They kill these two guys and they behead them hmm. and they bury their bodies, but they keep their heads. That whole part of that story there just kind of amazes me. Uh, back then, uh, I travel Highway 17 all the time to take my kid to college and pick him up. Back then, Highway 17 was a dirt road. This is a major, you know, four or six lane highway now, and it was a dirt road. And these natives, it kind of reminded me, you mentioned the, the mafia earlier in, in a previous story. Uh, the way they did it, they tricked these guys. Uh, they were in an in a impossible situation you either capture or kill your own men or we're going to allow the enemy to kill your whole tribe so they're all walking along buddy buddy hey friends you know walking to this trading post and all of a sudden all the other guys pull out rifles and muskets or whatever they had and just and just kill these two guys you know ambush their own friends they're talking telling jokes one minute and then boom next they're dead and it just kind of reminded me of a, a uh, you know, a mafia um, yeah. family takedown on a, on a dirt road, and uh, that is now modern day seventeen. It's kind of cool, I thought. It's only cool if you're not the guys that got beheaded. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> I think enough time has gone by. We can we can enjoy these wicked yes, stories. Like the, the, I mean, it's very mob like. Like the, the the killers didn't follow the rules. No. Yeah. They take these two heads to a local uh, military man, and he sends the two heads uh, with. A, I think it was a, was it a slave? A slave messenger? A slave. It was a young slave boy, I think. Yeah, yeah slave boy. They send the two heads to the governor, and I, I guess the governor was, was not really hoping that they would kill these two men. They were going to, you know. Like, turn them in. They were going to turn them in and say, here, Catawba Indians, we have these two people who are responsible for killing people, members of your tribe, but instead, you know, they took matters into their own hands and they send the two heads. It's Governor James Glenn, and they, they said the heads were, saw your note that says, rotten, maggot-covered, bloody bag. Yeah. Um, the heads were cooking a little bit in they, the southern heat. They were. <laughs> it, it sounded very gruesome. I also read that Governor Glenn had the brains removed from the heads and he pickled them in spirits and sent them by Pony Express to the Catawba Nation to prove that justice had been done. But guess what? The brains wouldn't, I would need more the face. No. <laughs> the brains. <laughs> of course, I wouldn't recognize. They probably don't know what the well, well, they, they look like. They, no, they, they, no, no, they took the brains out. They and then oh. they said they pickled the face and the head. Oh, they, they, okay. they removed the brain. So I thought they, they pickled could, the brains. No, no, they were they 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 pickled the head. And so because of the tattoos on the face, they were able to oh. identify that these were the two men who had killed members of their tribe. I gotcha. The identifying tattoos were there. Uh, pickled brains sounded tastier. Well, what was kind of interesting to me was. Uh, the governor decided not to prosecute the members of the uh, Nachi tribe for killing their own for people. For killing their own people. They had, but he also 
they took matters into their own hands. I mean, the Nazi tribe had retribution on their own members, so he didn't really have to do anything, but he also declined to prosecute right. the but Nazis. Maybe he would never knew who did it, right? Because they just, all the messenger shows up with some heads in a bag. You're like, eh. <laughs> well, that, I don't know. They might not, I mean, they might not have been able to prove exactly who, who, who killed them. But it settled the two nations from battling it settled yeah. the dispute, yes. Yeah. yeah, it was kind of for the greater good. So, uh, you know, a couple of dead versus uh, hundreds or thousands, I guess, was um, the way they looked at it, I imagine. Uh, three months after this, the king of the Catawba Nation, the little warrior, traveled more than 100 miles to Charleston to thank Governor Glenn in person. And then on April 26, 1745, the governor and the little warrior shook hands at the council chamber and formed a lasting friendship that contributed to the success of South Carolina. Hmm. So there is your pot luck version of the wicked South. And Michael, we've got a little, not a little, but a very important sponsor to talk about as we start to wrap. Yeah, we do. And uh, to kind of, um, you know, wrap up on these stories, uh, i we see there's there's tales of mayhem and, and murder and torture and beheading, but there's ultimately some either major historical significance to come from these things, or in this case, the, the two men who died and were beheaded, um, that that murder ultimately led to a, a, a peaceful um, a treaty, a, a friendship that um, probably, um, you know, it obviously shaped history but, and probably saved countless lives. And, um, Ultimately, you know, we know the Native American story has been a very tragic one. Mm -hmm. um, but from these tragic stories, some good was at least temporarily done in the course of our history. So all this, if you're a history lover, all this is, is very interesting. Um, you know, something to, to think about, something to ponder. Uh, murder uh, can have disastrous effects and sometimes murder can can affect the course of history in, sure. in different ways. Um, uh, yes, no question about that. That's a. Uh, the Wicked South podcast is what it is on Facebook. Um, Michael DeWitt's book, Wicked Hampton County, is out. What's the, how's, uh, or how's things going with the fall of the House of Murdoch, Michael? Well, I've got a great announcement to make. The official release date is December 8th, which I do believe is Friday of this week. So uh, we're going to release the book in two days, and I am waiting for an early shipment from Santa Claus. And if it happens, I'm going to make a surprise announcement and <laughs> hold a surprise uh, sneak peek event before the official date. So I'm kind of sitting on pins and needles waiting on uh, Amazon or UPS or somebody to come down uh, Highway 17 and bring me a little something. So, uh, <laughs> well, we are excited for you. Congratulations. And uh, we'll be talking more about that. You can also find him on uh, the Net Newspapers USA Today newspaper network, uh, Seton Tucker, and me you can find on Impact of Influence as well, and occasional Court TV, and also we want to thank, uh, what, what show are we on? Which one? What network? Oh, Law and Crime, Antoinette Levy. Oh, she's cool. I like her a lot. All right. We want to thank our sponsors, uh, Dr. Kenny Kinsey of Kenny Kinsey and Associates. If you have a bag full of heads delivered to your door, <laughs> uh, he is the guy you can call to investigate. Holy moly. Uh, we want to thank uh, Rotten Little Bastard Distillery and Palmetto Pride Distillery. If you need some 
hundred proof moonshine to pickle your bag of heads to ship for <laughs> Christmas gifts or anything. Uh, our sponsors can certainly help you out. And finally, uh, right here at Rotten Little Bastard, they now have pint bottles. You can get uh, almost any one of their their craft spirits in pint bottles. And uh, if you're a rascal uh, like some of the people I hang around with, it, it's very important <laughs> to know the right size bottle. If you buy a liter or a half gallon, you might make bad decisions like uh, kiss a woman at a family reunion or <laughs> 375 milliliters. That's the perfect amount of any kind of moonshine or spirits to drink. Any more than that, you know, you're going to find yourself getting in a little trouble, um, misbehaving, making bad decisions. So go down to Rotten Little Bastard and get just the right amount of their uh, handcrafted moonshine and other spirits. There you go. Uh, please rate and share the episode. Please support our sponsors so we can keep doing what we're doing and love to hear your comments as well. And we will talk soon, friend.